This podcast is brought to you by Pastor Stormy Swan and Faith Christian Family Church of Lubbock, Texas. For more information, please visit faithchurchlubbock.com. Once you get a Bible, go with me to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 3. Now, we've been talking about identity today. And we'll see some enlightening verses here that will help us in every area of our life. And maybe something you're going through in uh, yourself right now. Ephesians 3 is where we'll begin. You know, the great evangelist Andrew Murray said this. He said, your heart is your world and your world is your heart. And the greatest things that God do for, for every one of us are internally. But often our only expectation is externally. But God wants to do something in your heart. And that's where God begins to work at us. And I like to say it this way. You, you get God in your heart and he'll start working on the inside. And oh, what a change will happen on the outside. And so you can believe God, he'll work in your heart. That's where he begins at. All right, Ephesians 3, verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's a nugget in that first sentence right there. For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I believe biblically that there's only one person we're going to bow our knees to, and that's the Lord Jesus the only way you can be saved is through Jesus. And so it's important that you see this right here. Verse 15. From whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. The whole family, whether people that are in heaven right now or the ones of us that are on earth right now, we're there and we're here because of Jesus and only him. And so my identity right there immediately is Jesus. Verse 16. That he would grant you according to the riches of his glory. To be strengthened with might through a spirit in the inner man. <laughs> in the inner man, okay? God wants to do something on the inside of every one of us. Verse number uh, 17. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you've been rooted and grounded in love that may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and the length and the depth and the height. Now, the word there that, that grabs a hold of me there is the word to be rooted. And to be rooted, that means I've, I've got to be planted. I've got to stay in the ground. I've I, I got to hang on to the things of God. And it becomes an everyday thing in my life in order to be rooted. You know, if you've ever planted anything, you know that when that little seedling comes up, he doesn't have very big roots. And it's very easy to pull him. But how many of you have ever had a, a weed in your yard that's been there all summer and you go out there, man, you, you get your gloves on and you pull that thing with everything. It doesn't come up because he's rooted. He's been there a while. Well, God wants us to be rooted in him just like that, where I'm not moved by anything in life that happens. Verse 19, to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who was able to do exceedingly abundantly above all we could ask or think. Now I don't know about you, but I really like that part right there. That we serve a God that is willing to do exceedingly abundantly above all I could think or ask. And look how he ends this. According to the power that works on the inside of us. And so he's telling me the things that God does for each one of us are an inside job. And only the things are in, that are internal will go with us into heaven. Now, I, I believe with all my heart that God wants me and you to enjoy life. 
He wants you to enjoy everything he's ever given you, even materially. But you know what? You, you can have all kinds of things materially. You can have a big, fancy house. You can have a house that's full of everything in the world that you can imagine. A hundred-foot TV screen, the greatest sound system, the greatest video, the most comfortable bed. But without peace and joy, you may have a fancy house, but you won't have a true home. And oftentimes our homes are nothing more than an MMA octagon where there's a lot of fussing, a lot of fighting, and a lot of feuding, and it's almost like everybody in the house is trying to get someone to submit. And you say, Pastor, that sounds like my house. Well, God wants to change that. And he begins on the inside and so I like to say it this way. You, you can't change a person externally. You can only change a person from the inside out. And that's what God's so great about. So he starts working on the inside. And all of a sudden, there's a change on the outside. And oh, what a change it is. Now, this morning, I want to show you how some of the choices in our life try to change the identity of who God says we are. Go with me to the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 11. 2 Samuel 11. This is a passage about King David. And when I think about King David in, in 1 Samuel 13, when Saul got into all the trouble he did, the Lord said to the prophet Samuel, he said, I'm going to find a man that's a man after my own heart. And he finds David. Now, David was a man after God's own heart. But it didn't mean he was exempt from life's trials. It didn't mean he was exempt from sin, just like me and you. And so let's begin here in, in 2 Samuel, verse 11. It happened in the spring of the year at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab, and who was his general, and his servants with him and all the Israel, and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. There's a nugget in this that will really help us to set the stage for this. The first part, it says, in the spring when kings go out to battle. Wasn't David a king? Yeah, he was. But in this passage, it said he decides not to go out and battle. And oftentimes in our life, trouble comes to us when we don't do what we're supposed to do. James 4.17 says, The man who knows to do good but doesn't do it, it's sin. And so right here in David's life, he chooses not to go. Literally, he chooses to disobey God. Verse 2, Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. Now, when you look at this, David literally, in my opinion, he had too much time on his hands. And so that night, he couldn't sleep. And in your life and in my life, when nighttime comes and you cannot sleep, you better start praying and you better start praising. And he did neither. And because he did neither, it got him in trouble. Now, if you'll look at the last part of verse 2, 
It says he saw a woman bathing. Be careful, little eyes, what you see. And right there where it says he saw, it's cross-reference to Matthew 5.28. It says that whoever looks on a woman to lust after her has already committed adultery in his heart. And so David chooses to look at something that he shouldn't have. Now watch where it goes. Verse 3. So David sent and inquired about the woman. And someone said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? I want to highlight something here. Someone said, She's the wife of Uriah. Excuse me, Mr. King. She's the wife of Uriah. In other words, genius, you got to get this. She's already married. Now, right here in this passage, it begins to show us the progression of sin itself. It starts with desire. It goes to enticement. It goes to sin and ultimately to death. And so, right here, David doesn't heed the warning. Verse 4. Then David sent messengers. And he took her and she came to him and he lay with her for she was cleansed from her impurity and she returned to her house. And the woman conceived. So she sent and told David and said, I am with child. Now when that was said to him, the modern interpretation of that, David said, son of a bendigo. This isn't good. This isn't good. He didn't really say that, okay? Some of you are looking like, I don't see that. This shows me a couple things. Number one, number 3223 says your sin will find you out. It's exactly what happened to David. But it also shows me this. Just because David was called King David didn't mean he was exempt from sin. He had a flesh just like me and you. Now, when I read this, we go all the way back to verse 1. Just think about this. If he would have been where he was supposed to be, and if he would have done what he was supposed to do, he would never be in this predicament. How many of you have been there in that way in your life before? You said, oh, my gosh. A lot of times people say, I was at the wrong place at the wrong time. But that was a choice of mine. Just like King David. So Bathsheba's pregnant and the king acted disgracefully. So you know what happens now? David's got a huge dilemma. He's got a huge problem and he's got to figure out what he's going to do. And just like me and you, when we blow it in life, we're either going to turn to God or we're going to turn to the things of man. Now, I wish I could tell you immediately David went on his knees and began to repent, but that didn't what happened. David gets this genius thought and he says this, you know what, I'm going to send for Uriah who was up at the front battling and I'm going to bring him home and I'm going to give him a weekend pass. And he was so deceptive in that. You know what his thinking is? I'm going to bring him home and he's going to go in and lie with Bathsheba and the problem is fixed. Everybody's going to think, well, there's the daddy. Problem. Uriah comes home. But he won't go in with Bathsheba. He literally sleeps outside her door. And they ask him, what's wrong with you, buddy? And you know what he said? 
He said, how can I go into my wife and lay with her when all my fellow soldiers, my friends and buddies, are up at the front fighting? He wouldn't do it. And so now, David's got another problem. But he doesn't turn to God. What he does next is he he sends Uriah back to the battle and he sends a note with him. It says, give it to Joab. And in the note, he tells Joab, whatever you do, you put Uriah in the hottest battle. You know what that meant? He literally had Uriah killed. Now we go all the way back a few pages just in our thoughts here. This was a man, it was said, who was a man after God's own heart. But when I quit doing what I know to do, and sin comes into my life, sin begins to change my identity. I'm no longer viewed as a man after God's own heart. My identity is now I am an adulterer, I'm sexually immoral, and I'm a murderer. Now, he didn't literally murder Uriah with his own hands, but he got a hit man, so he had him killed. But he still did this right here. You know, Romans 3.23 says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, let me help you with that. All have sinned. A-L-L, all. So you know what that means? Everybody in this room, everybody sitting next to you has sinned. And I don't care if you think you're a modern Mary Poppins. You've sinned, Mary. Okay? I don't care if you think you've sprouted angel wings. You've sinned, Mary. I promise you. So the issue isn't if we're going to sin. The issue becomes, what do I do when I've sinned? And this is the same thing that King David finds out in his own life. So turn with me to, to Psalm or 2 Samuel 12. 2 Samuel chapter 12. Now let me set the table for you what's going on here. Since this occurred with Bathsheba, a year has passed. But David, the man after God's own heart, he never does repent. The the greatest thing that we can do as human beings is when we repent. We take ownership, but he wouldn't do it. So we start in, in 2 Samuel 12 verse 1. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David. This is how God begins to operate. Understand Nathan's a man of God. Nathan's a prophet. Nathan is on assignment from God to confront David. Now this is how much that God loves you and me. He loved him so much. This was God's mercy and his grace. He was like, David, I don't want you living this way. I don't like you being disconnected from me. So he sends Nathan into his life. Oftentimes, God will do that in our lives. When we won't repent on our own, God will love you so much. And I don't know about you. I used to have a guy that he'd do that. And he'd look at me and he'd say, you can't do that. He'd make me so mad. I'd look at him like, well, who died and left you in charge? But literally, the guy was sent from God to say, man, I love you so much. Quit doing those things. So right here, this is what happens. And he came to him and he said to him, there were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. And I'm going to cheat a little bit. I'm going to tell you what's going on. The rich man was David. The poor man was Uriah. Keep reading with me. 
The rich man, David, had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man, Uriah, had nothing except one little ewe, Bathsheba, which he had bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and with his children. It ate of his own food, drank from his own cup, and lay in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So David's anger was greatly aroused. Now think about this. Nathan shows up and he begins to talk to David. And I believe when he starts talking, the conversation gets really intense. And I believe David's eyes were really focused on Nathan. Everything he was saying. And so David becomes, uh, he becomes greatly aroused and angry against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. David thinks that he's condemning other people, but literally he's condemning himself. Verse 6. And he shall restore fourfold for the lamb because he did this thing and because he had no pity. David speaks, or David, better yet, prophesies his own punishment. And it shows me how insensitive he had become to his own sin. But think about what David said about himself. He said, the man who did this, he's going to die, and he's going to restore four times what he stole. Verse 8. Verse 7. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. Now, just as quiet as it got in here, I believe that's how it got where David was. When Nathan looked at him and said, you're the man. All the air in the room was sucked out. And this this took a great courage from, from Nathan. You know why? Because David was the king. You know what David could have said? I'm going to cut your head off today, buddy. You've talked too much. But Nathan was more concerned with David knowing the truth and repenting than he was for his own sake. So we keep reading. I gave you your master's house, God said this, and your wives in keeping, and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. If that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. Why have you decided the commandments of the Lord to do evil in the sight? You, King David, you killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and you have taken his wife to be your wife, and you have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah, the Hittite, to be your wife. Now, when you read that, understand when I do the the hideous things that David did, the Lord said, you've despised me. So here David now is having to meditate on this. He's having to listen to this indictment and he knows he's guilty. Now, for time's sake, look at verse 13. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned. I have sinned. Powerful. It's very powerful when a human being will admit it and say, I've sinned. I've blown it. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Now understand, remember what we read. David had prophesied, you'll die. 
But here, because he repented, God said, you're not going to die. I believe with all my heart that if David wouldn't have repented, he'd have died. But in this situation, God forgives him there. But understand this. The wages of sin is death. That's, that's Romans 6.23. So in this situation, God, God uh, protected David and didn't have him killed. But understand this. The rest of David's life, he lived with the pain from the consequences of his sin. For the rest of his life, the sword never departed from his house. And there was a lot of pain. Now, when this occurred right here, what we're reading, in this time in David's life, he writes the 51st Psalm. Go to Psalm 51, and I want you to say this. This is Psalm chapter 51, and I'll just tell you as you're turning there. King David tells us, what God can do on the inside of any human being that repents. That truly repents. What do you mean by that? How many times do we repent just because we got caught? Everyone has have done that. But when the human being is truly sorrowful for what he's done, God begins to move. So we start in, in Psalm 51, verse 1. David speaking, Have mercy upon me, O God. According to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. I'm going to stop right there and let me give you a little insight here. Verses 1, 2, and 3, on five different occasions, he's going to use the word my. My. What David does right there is he shows us he doesn't try to make any excuses for what he did. Even more so, he doesn't try to blame anybody. He doesn't try to blame Bathsheba and said, if she wouldn't been on the roof bathing, I would have never got into this. No, here becomes a man that stands up and takes responsibility for what he did in front of Father God. And he said, I've blown it. Now watch what happens here at the end of verse 1. Blot out my transgressions. And wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions. He doesn't try to deny them or hide them. And my sin is always before me. And when I read that right there, it's like you can sense the regret in him. It's like he says, man, everywhere I go, the sin is always before me. And you can imagine the ridicule that people did toward him. You're a hypocrite. Keep reading with me. And against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. That you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. From the depths of David's heart, from the depths of his soul, he repents right here. And he asks God to pardon him and he asks God to forgive him. Can I tell you what happens? 1 John 1, 9 says that if we'll confess our sin, that God is faithful and just to not only forgive us, but to cleanse us. I believe at this moment in his heart, he was forgiven. But what David gets ready to ask God to do next, he couldn't do for himself. The very things that he's getting ready to ask God to do, only God could do because it's an inside job. Now start with me in verse 10. Psalm 51, verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, 
a pure heart. Not just wash me from my sin, but he goes deeper right here and he says, Father God, make me pure to the core. I ask you to come on the inside of me here. Change me. Now, what he asked for in all these passages, he asked after he repented. Okay? He's already repented. But he said, create in me a new heart. That word create right there in the Greek is the same Greek word that's found in Genesis 1.1 where God created in the heavens and the earth. You know what this literally means? That God is, has the ability to create something out of nothing. And he says, oh Lord, create in me a new heart. Now look at the next verse, or the next sentence in verse 10. And renew a steadfast spirit within me. Renew a loyal spirit within me. A steadiness in my everyday walk. I don't want my life to be an elevator where I'm up and down. The word steadfast here means firm. Strong, immovable, that he was asking God to move, uh, to do a work of grace within him. See, you know what I believe David was saying? I don't like my life being a yo yo. I'm up and down. I rise and I fall. One day it's a mountain, the next day it's a valley. No, Lord, I want to live for you all the days of my life. I want to be a rock. I don't want to be jello. I want to be a rock. But only you can do it. Verse 11. Do not cast me away from your presence. And do not take your Holy Spirit from me. This this verse is so powerful right here. Note what what he asked God for. He didn't say, Father God, I want to go down as the greatest king ever. He didn't say, Father God, I want to be famous. He didn't say, Lord, I, I want a bigger house. And I want about 50... Camelax. He didn't say any of that. Look what he says right here. He said, Lord, don't take your presence from me and don't take your spirit from me. The greatest things in his life right now is, Lord, I got to have your presence and I got to have the Holy Spirit. And when I read that, I have to ask in my own life, is that my prayer? God, i got to have more of your presence. God, i got to have more of your Holy Spirit. Or is everything I ever ask God about, is it externally? Oh, Lord, do something on the inside of me. Verse 12. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Now think about that right now. Restore, restore, restore. Think about an old car being restored. But he said, restore to me the joy of my salvation. What is salvation for every one of us in this room? It becomes the beginning point. And he's saying, take me back to that beginning point. And if you remember that in your own life, the day you got born again, it was the greatest day. You were so full of life. You're like, oh, my, my father, he, he's forgiven me of all my sin. And he's changed me. Something happened to me today. And this is what David's saying. Restore to me that that beginning point. You know, think about this in your life. And I used the the analogy a minute ago with the car. If you've ever bought a brand new car, man, the first week you own that dude, you really take care of it. The first month, 
if you're really good, you must six months. Man, I mean, you vacuum it if there's a little spot. I mean, have you ever gone by the car wash and you see a guy out there buffing his rims, man? I mean, getting at angles where he can see it. But before long, we start allowing a bunch of junk to accumulate in our vehicles. And most of the time, they're filthy and they're dirty. And some of you cars are nothing more than a landfill with four wheels. That hurt, Pastor. But see, even spiritually often, that's how we are. We start out with a bang and we're so full of zeal and the things of God. But before long, it's almost like that the things that were so new and real, they wear off. And even right here, he says, Lord, restore to me the joy of salvation. And uphold me by your generous spirit. Lord, I, I want to be willing to accept your will. Now hold your place right there and, and turn with me to the book of Philippians chapter 2. I'm going to come right back there. But I want you to see this today in Philippians 2. This, this will, will speak to your heart. Philippians chapter 2. And I'm going to read it starting in verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in your absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, Paul wasn't teaching right here that your salvation is dependent on your works. What Paul was saying right here is that your salvation will be revealed in progressive uh, uh, Christ-likeness. Upright character. Where what he's literally saying, there should be some proof in your life that you're saved. That people begin to look and say, man, I, I don't know what happened to Uncle Buck, but he's different. I don't know what happened to Aunt Sally, but she's different. That it, it should become noticeable. The things that happen in your life. And I don't know about if you guys, if you've ever seen anyone that got born again and, and the transformation was so incredible that it shocked everybody. I've seen people like that. I've witnessed it. Actually, I'm one of those guys. And that's how it should be that we begin to see something. He doesn't talk the way he used to. He doesn't have those type of parties like he used to. Something happened to him. Now look what he says in verse 13. For it is God. For it is God. It doesn't say it's your mother. It doesn't say it's your wife. It says for it is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. God wants to work in you and me. To do of his will and his good pleasure. God's will. And you know what the problem is? Are we willing to surrender? Do I surrender and say, okay, Father God. See, it's one thing to call Jesus Savior. It's another thing to call him Lord. That's when I surrender my heart. But the point here in this is, it's God who works in you. And God's still in the working in your business. And he'll change you. He still takes messes and makes miracles. 
Now go with me back to Psalm 51. And I want to read one more verse in that passage, verse 17. The sacrifices of God, the desires of God are a broken spirit. A broken and a contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. These, O oh God, you will not reject. The reason I read that, I don't care what you've done in life. When I come to, to Father God and, and I'm sorrowful of what I've done, and I'm willing to repent for my actions. He won't reject you. And one of the, the greatest stories we can read in the Bible isn't what wasn't just about King David's success as a king. It was also about his failures. And when David went back to the Lord, his whole identity changed again. And in Psalm 50 verse 15, it says, call upon me. In the day of trouble. And I'll hear you and I'll answer you. And so one of the keys in David's life was calling upon the Lord. But if you were here last week. If you remember in Genesis 12 and Genesis 13. The man named Abraham. He went to the altar. And when he got off track. You know what he did? He came back to the altar. He came back to the beginning point. And something happens as human beings when I just keep coming back to the altar and you want to change your identity, make it a habit of calling on God. Too often we get away from calling on God. I would venture to say the majority of us in this room, the only time we call on God is when we're in trouble. We throw the name of Jesus out like a life preserver. And we say, oh, in Jesus' name, you've got to do something, God. Help. But what would happen? If I'd come to the altar on a daily basis. I had a place where I meet with God in my own home, that altar. You know, I, I've never, never, never forgotten this story. And, and so you guys believe that my stories are true. Belinda, raise your hand. This is Belinda right here. I know her father. And years ago, she said this to me. She said, some of the most fondest memories of my dad ever is when I'd get ready for school in the mornings and I'd walk by the living room and my father would be on his knees with his hands raised, calling out to God. Something happens when we surrender our hearts and we call out to God. And God wants to reconnect with many of us today. And it takes huge people to say, you know what? I've blown it in this area. And you know what? Maybe you had not blown it today. Maybe you just need a, a, a fresh anointing of his presence. Maybe you need a fresh dose of the Holy Spirit. Maybe you're dry spiritually and life is a grind. And the Lord's saying, just respond to me. Thank you for listening today. For more information, please visit faithchurchlubbock.com.